Welcome. I'm your host, Francisca Porchas Coronado. This podcast is a project of Vigente in collaboration with Resilient Strategies. Vigente is a political home of Latinx people that is pro-black, pro-woman, pro-queer, pro-migrant, pro-poor, because our community is all that and more. Resilient Strategies is a healing justice project transforming the impact of state violence on our bodies and the collective as a critical part of liberation. Welcome to La Cura, everybody. I'm super excited to have Louis A. Ortiz Fonseca on the podcast today. A little bit about Louis Fonseca is he is an HIV-positive, queer, Afro-Boricua, award-winning HIV activist and artist. He is the creator of the Gran Varones, a digital storytelling project that amplifies Latinx and Black queer history. Louis is also the host of the YouTube series for LGBTQ youth, Kiki's with Louie. So welcome to La Cura Podcast, Louie. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> um, so just a little background. I first learned about Gran Varones that then led me to meet Louie through a fellow activist, organizer. His name is um, Miguel Andrade. He is one of our Warrior Wednesdays for Healing and Resistance, and he told us about Gran Varones. So then that's how I got curious about who Gran Varones or what Gran Varones is, and then um, reading some of the stories. And then I uh, reached out and wanted to really have a conversation with with Louis about it. And so maybe we could start there. I know um, we had a, a earlier conversation where it's like, what would be good to lift up in this conversation with Louis? And there's so much that you do. Um, I think I mentioned some of it in your bio from, from the Gran Varones to uh, the really dope YouTube show, Kiki with Louis. And I would love to hear about it all. And then also a conversation about pop culture and um, your sort of radical view, your radical framework for it. I uh, would love to hear a little bit more about where you're from, where you grew up, and what your community was and has been. So funny that you mentioned uh, Miguel, because he was one of the first persons we interviewed for the project. And that was like five years ago. So I'm like humble that he brought it up. Um, like Miguel, I'm from Philadelphia on the opposite side. If I remember correctly, he either grew up in the Roosevelt Boulevard section or in South Philly. I grew up in North Philly, which is predominantly Puerto Rican and black. And I'm one of seven boys, the the oldest in the house with the expectation of having a lot of responsibilities. And I think that shows up. Um, definitely in how I move through relationships and how I move through the world, like spark everything and everyone and all of the wonderful and traumatic mm-hmm. things that come with that. Um, grew up with a mother who struggled with addiction. I uh, say that while that provided, while that came with a lot of, um, I want to say trauma, less than all the things that come with um, addiction. But I also think that part of it made her kind of a radical mom. Like, we grew up with drag queens and 
gay men and trans women mm. around the house, right? During the eighties, during the when the AIDS epidemic was at its peak and when the crack epidemic crack epidemic was at its peak. Because she struggled with crack, she was always surrounded by mm. other marginalized people. So I grew up, you know, we grew up very poor and again the struggle with addiction and with these people mm. that the world didn't want, but some made it into our house. And that kind of informed the music I listen to, how I observe and how I take in pop culture, where my pop culture references were always through the queer and trans folks, uh, for as far as I can remember. So I think that because because of what my mother dealt with, she surrounded herself with outcasts. And I think part of that saved Mm -hmm. my life, the same way I say that growing up queer Save my life because I don't have a coming out story, right? I was always out. My mother knew that I was a flaming fag from the, you know, the, the from the day one. You know what I mean? So I, part of my story isn't being afraid to tell the part of my story is like going into the world and realizing that the world had a problem, mm. not my family. Mm. And again, so like, and that is what I think all those things, the eighties and nineties definitely is what makes Louis today. And, you know, I would venture to say that a lot of people move to see the world the way that I do. Luckily, thankfully, I have a platform in which I'm able to do that. More power to badass mamas of the world. And also that I think you're saying um, this kind of environment uh, built on C. It's like the, the there's the trauma and then there's also like how do we intentionally build in a practice that will be a resilience practice environment in a very unsafe world, right? And potentially very unsafe, right? Like gaining health issues in that world that's so homeminatory and HIV phobic, and then building in a space that also people to be their full selves and loving each other and seeing each other and, um, and then manifesting somebody like you, who I think is pretty dope. Yeah, and I, you know, and I'm thankful that I that I lived long enough to to um, kind of remember it in that way. Of course, when I was deep in that reality, I don't, I didn't tell, I didn't tell the story that I say now because mm-hmm. you're in it, you're surviving it, right? You're trying to stay above water, but as I continue to tell my story, I, I begin to realize all of the magic and all of the creative space and all of the creative ways that my mother provided me, that addiction and all of the things that she mentioned um, just did not allow me or even the world to see at the time. So I'm just thankful that I'm able to, part as part of my recollection of my past and my life, that I'm able to, you know, work through the trauma, but also discover all of the great things and the things that I took for granted Mm -hmm. or didn't even know was there that I'm able to recognize. Like you begin to have these realizations or pull some of this from the story or from, you know, the experiences. (laughs) You know, I was supposed to be a spoken word artist. Like at the turn of the century, uh, me and my best friend were like, you know, creating our chat books and, you know, performing all over Philadelphia. And a lot of our poems were, about growing up with a mother who struggled mm-hmm. with addiction, right? So I think part of it, um, especially 
in that time, you know, while there were a lot of struggles, I think part of growing up with a mother um, with addiction, like you are directed mm. to not love her. You're directed, you're socially directed and socially led to pick her apart because that's pretty much all that you see. And that was the story of mothers mm-hmm. who struggled with a crack in the 90s that they had failed, right? Like less than human. They were right. crack fiends. They weren't human. So part of the resilience was like being able to love your mother even when the world was telling you not to. Mm-hmm. So it made you a kind of warrior, even when you didn't want to be, right? Like I didn't know I was a warrior. So a lot of our poetry and a lot of our spoken word uh, pieces were, were through that lens. Like no matter what the world says, mm. I love my mother. And I think that once I transitioned from spoken word artist to um, doing more direct storytelling or the kind of storytelling I do now with social media and digital in the digital space. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's just transitioned into that realm. But I would say like at the mm-hmm. turn of the century um, is when I really began to really tell the stories that I've experienced and, um, and see it in that kind of way where it wasn't right. always awful. Profound that, it was through your own storytelling, I mean, through your poetry, which is, you know, some form of storytelling, and then uh, your storytelling that you were able to kind of understand, uh, get a deeper understanding of the experiences. And then also, you realize, not in the moment how much you loved your mother, but that you loved your mother so much through it all, and the level mm-hmm. of radical love and compassion and understanding. And, and it's, and it also just goes to show like, you know, the, the healing of poetry and storytelling can have that it kind of exposes us to our Mm -hmm. own story in ways that maybe we hadn't realized, or it makes certain things bubble up in some ways, or um, Mm. we're able to see, we might've not had the words or even the eyes to see in the moment. Yes. Yes. I'm just repeating back what you said to me. So with that, your project is beautiful, uh, and I feel like I want the world to know about it, more of the world to know about it. I mean, all of the projects, definitely Gran Varones, which is amplifying trans and queer pop culture history, and also the uh, Latinx and Afro-Latinx gay, queer, trans, bisexual men and boys is a really beautiful like if you go to the instagram page and if you go to the tumblr i want to say i'm not in tumblr so i'm totally like illiterate but i definitely on instagram and you begin to see the stories at the intersection of all of these things and everything from you know i was reading about on it about ramon novarro who was i guess like the first sort of Latin, Latino, Latin legend, like actor in the 20s who did more than like 50 movies. He was Afro-Cuban and just like the golden era of like film, I guess, in this country and had no idea he existed, right? I'm not sure if I'm saying um, their name right. Niobe um, was the godmother of freestyle. I was like, oh, snap, you know, the godmother of freestyle, like this black latina latinx legend who whose first like latinx freestyle song was please don't go and so then i started going on this rabbit hole on her you know so it's just like 
would love to hear more about how this project came about. You told us a lot already, you know, your how you came up in the world and your your poetry and then your storytelling. I'd love to hear more about how Gran Varones came about and sort of that first concepts and then how it's now manifested into this thing. You know, much like my um, when I did Spoken Word, I did it with two co-workers, you know, that were like brother and sister to me. Um, and because that's, I usually make friends with people I work with. And I think that's why I've survived in nonprofit and HIV, the HIV industrial yeah. complex, if you will, because the my team members become friends to me, right? And it was the same when I was at an organization in Philadelphia um, and worked with two great um, young men, Anthony Leon and Sean Laughlin. And Anthony had, is Afro-Poriqua, had moved from Lancaster, PA, where the, what, they're not Mormons, they are. <laughs> I they have the no babies. idea. <laughs> um, I'm like, I can start like throwing out all kinds of religions, uh, but I don't know, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Pentecostals. <laughs> Oh my God, I cannot. I cannot believe, believe in Christ. I'm long week. Well, anyway, it's yes, uh, it's predominantly white. Um, so when he came to Philadelphia, he had this romanticized, you know, vision that there were going to be all mm. these Latinx queer spots, and they weren't because you know Philadelphia is a very se- like much cities in this country is a very segregated city. There was remnants and there was like ash of what could have been a Latinx um, queer and trans culture in Philadelphia, but those things just never took off. And, you know, that's also because people, the mass extinction Mm -hmm. that was happening because of the AIDS epidemic. Um, So like people in the baton, um, the person Mm -hmm. who grabbed the baton also died. So like there was, and then in the, like five years ago to even, create either a space or a nightlife that requires tons of resources. So after, you know, complaining that there wasn't, that those stories weren't necessarily being amplified, there were Latinx stories being Mm -hmm. amplified, but there were a certain kind of Mm -hmm. story being amplified. Um, And it wasn't necessarily those who were born and raised in Philadelphia or those who were born and raised and still surviving. Yeah, but it was probably a what, like um, more so, mainstream Latinos, middle class Latinos? Or- I would say mostly mm-hmm. white folks and folks who weren't from Philadelphia, um, folks who made their way to Philadelphia Ivy League school, right? Because that's, you know, because people love that story. Like, I'm the first in my family to graduate yeah. from UPenn. And that's no shade, right? That is a story to be told. But a lot of times that is the only story that's told. So we decided that. We would just create something and interview people. And because Anthony in Philadelphia, this provided him an opportunity to meet people. And although I was raised and raised in Philadelphia, I had worked in HIV practically all my life. Right now, I've worked in it half my life, literally. So I'm asking people to participate in a project that I I was probably going to get a lot of no's because people were going to associate it. So having, yeah, right? Because... And again, like that's part of the when people ask gay men to tell their stories, it is through the lens of HIV, as if that's the only thing we face. So because Anthony didn't was new to Philadelphia, it it gave us something to leverage. So I was able to coordinate the interviews, and he was able to conduct the interviews, um, and that's pretty much how it 
started. It was an idea we weren't sure what it was going to be or where it was because the only thing that I think we could model it after was or the closest thing that came to it was knew that we wanted to take pictures and tell stories, but that was pretty much it. Um, and that was a little over five years ago. And during that time, the project just grew and it grew that it would be a project that would get stories outside of Philadelphia. The original description had Philadelphia in it because we were just going to collect stories from the, um, but then over time we got emails from people in Alaska. We got people, <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell are you doing in You're Alaska? Like, First of all, why uh, are you in Alaska? <laughs> it's cold. But it turns out that that if you wanted mm. to do if you want to do meteorology, you have to spend time in Alaska. Really? That is why okay, that makes sense. <laughs> and I didn't know that. Um, yeah, yeah. Like the, it's kind of like an internship. That is one thing you have to do. Um, and then over time, it just grew, and it grew from telling stories to incorporate op-eds to create um, pop culture, music, history, and queer history. And again, that's been something really organic. I did a lot of the music history stuff on my personal Instagram page. And someone who I met in Detroit who loves the project and introduced it to her brother, um, mm-hmm. she had DM'd, she texted me actually and said, hey, I have a question. Why do you not do the music history stuff on Gran Varones? And I was like, oh, because, you know, it's music. And I didn't think yeah. that... Does that make sense? She's like, yeah, your song, your project well, true, is named after right? a song. <laughs> and I was like, oh, like it never occurred to me. So because of her, that is why mm-hmm. that is incorporated into the project. Right. So like it's been this give and take from community that has, you know, what we see now, it's because of the love and the support that people have given and- also, I mean, I, the one thing that I'm, you know, I was completely oblivious about until you named it right now is I don't think I understood that what has been lifted a lot as stories of gay men has been mostly around HIV. I know for sure I was, that felt like very, that felt like a really big thing back in like the late 90s, maybe even early 2000s or like what I felt like was, a, uh, it was, it was something that was like in mass media and that kind of thing. Do you feel like that's still very much the case now? And that, would you say like gay men in general, or would you say like definitely very like Latino and black gay men? Um, that is a great question. Not so much. Cause I think that in the nineties we were inundated with stories around, you know, being gay and HIV or being impacted by HIV somehow. And that's because HIV truncated all that mm-hmm. was going to happen, all that could have happened with the queer and trans revolution, right? So like it, I don't think that, that is how right. devastating the impact was. And I think that only now, almost 30 years into the epidemic, we're mm. able to see that and recognize that. But I think in the nineties, it's kind of like, well, right. What, what other stories do y'all got to tell? Right. So I think that, like, being 30 years removed, you know, 30 years later, I think that it's still a story that people tell. I don't think as much as they did in the 90s. And some people would see that, like, wow, we've made some great improvements or we have some, we've made some great strides in HIV. And certainly that is true. 
but statistics still, you know, Latino gay men are one in four are likely to get HIV. One in four of gay Latino men are likely to get HIV in their lifetime. And while all of the infection rates have pretty much either have been reduced or stabilized in other populations, mm-hmm. they have increased for Latino gay men, right? So it's this, I think now we're in this weird space where folks are telling beautiful and more complicated and more in-depth stories or stories that expand on our experiences and not so much focusing on HIV, but it's still a very real thing. But I think now the stories are not just, I have HIV. I think now we're getting more of a context that HIV is an epidemic that is driven by poverty. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of the stories that we're getting now. And I think to Gravarones, you know, because when we first started the project, it was like exploring what being gay and what coming out was right. for Latino gay men, right? So a lot of the earlier stories were what's your coming out story, and how did that and how did and how did that change their role in right. their family? But over time, that's expanded. Now people tell their stories about their first love, tell their stories about forgiving their father. Tell their stories about how they <laughs> yes. fought their cousin on New Year's Eve. Um, <laughs> and, you know, now they're more complicated. So I think that, again, to answer your original question, I don't tell this, uh, the same kind of story we told in, 19, in the 1990s. I think they're more, I think they're just right. different and I expanded mean, now. Yeah, and then also just the... For good and bad reasons. I think what you're saying is, at some point, in terms of if we go back to pop culture and like what was making its way into like mass media, it was like, um, you know, it was just illness, right? Um, it was you, your story, your narrative, yes. who you are is just an illness. Like there was no nuance to who people really were, what their lives were, what their, you know, communities the communities that surrounded them, the communities that they led, that they influenced, that these they formed the, you know, all, all of the beauty of people's lives and, and complications of their lives and nuances. Like it was literally just like people were deemed whole masses of people, uh, gay men, <laughs> gay people were just this, the whole story was illness, you know, um, and othering. Yeah. And I think part of that, now that I think about it, it was, kind of convincing mm-hmm. people that we were human. And I don't think that kind of convincing mm-hmm. exists now, Not at least not as much. They're still convincing to get people in power uh, on some level to see us as human and worthy. I think during the height of the epidemic or even in the late 90s, it was like, look, we're not mean, ugly people. We're not mean, dirty people. We're mm. dying. Don't you feel sorry for us? When you were saying, like, you know, just the really cool different types of posts and stories that are lifted, I came up, <laughs> I love this one. Request for my funeral, a poem. Can I read it? In my obituary, sure. please be sure to note that in addition to my deep thoughts, I had a deep throat. Bury me without shirt so that the world knows I died loving my fat belly. Serve Long Island iced teas. Play Mariah songs loudly so that anyone who moved gets the Holy Ghost. 
book two Azalea Banks drag queens to do the absolute most, then make a toast to all the bitches that I didn't know. Smoke weed and shake your entire asses with your tongues out. Tell the people that they can honor my memory at the bathhouse. Don't paint me as an intellectual. Promise me you will testify that I was a messy homosexual. If you love me, you will make sure my eulogy is lit as fuck. <laughs> I love that poem. It's amazing. It goes Thank back you. to like, what's the stories? You know, what are the stories you're telling? And and what's the, um, the humor? And some of it is just fun, you know? Uh, some of it is just fun. And I think the other thing is um, I would love to hear from you a little bit about how you see um some of what gran varones is putting out in terms of like how you want to influence pop culture and how i mean the influence is happening anyway in general like all of us influence it in one way or another some of us are invisibilized in the process of influencing it many of us especially people of color poor people queer people but wondering what kind of impact you know if you dream big um you would you envision Gran Varon is sort of having and maybe you're you know maybe you're just allowing it to just be an open thing where just like it goes where it goes but curious if you have sort of a vision for it you know I think what comes to mind is that people just tell their stories and I know that sounds cliche but um I love that people post what they're eating remember when people <laughs> yes. check in people don't do that as much um not, now I don't know where people at, but um, I love when people post mm-hmm. any and everything, right? I know that for some people <laughs> that can be annoying, but it is recording our history. You know, and I always reference the Pulse Massacre as a reminder of why it's important to post the things that we may deem mm-hmm. as insequential, right? I don't know if that's a word. Maybe it is. We know that someone danced with their mother because they posted it on Snapchat. We know that people mm. were drinking because they posted it on Snapchat. And those are stories that had we not, had they not posted those things, had they not shared those very tiny, quote unquote, unimportant, uneventful things with us, we would have not known right. that there was complete joy and community yeah. and familia before that occurred. So if there's any influence I want Gravarones to have is that your story, regardless of where it is and where you started, deserves to be told. A lot of times when I ask people to share their stories, I always get, well, I don't know, my story's not important because they think that I'm that there's this narrative. We've been socialized that there's a narrative that has a you know a bow at the end of it, like this pretty ass bow. If your story is that you know, you are not speaking to your mom because she didn't show up to your graduation. That is a story. That may not be your complete story because that is still unwritten. <laughs> oh, Natasha Bedingfield. Um, yes. <laughs> but yeah, again, I, I just hope that people tell their stories and no matter what there are, sex being sex workers, being folks who are working at fast food restaurants, those who are struggling in PhD programs, those who are newly diagnosed, those who are long-term survivors of HIV, those who have survived gun violence and sexual violence, and those who have never experienced any of those things. It is my hope that everyone tells their story so that, you know, 20, 
you know, the, the legacy I want that I've always, is that 20 years from now that there's a queer Latino boy mm. somewhere reading the stories in our mm-hmm. history by those mm-hmm. who lived it. They're not, you know, getting it solely from a documentary that was funded and directed right. by whiteness. That they're hearing it directly from the people mm-hmm. who told them. And I don't, you know, Gravarones is just one project. You know, I, I want tons of projects like Gravarones to exist because we can only tell part of our community stories. And I think that people, it is my hope that they feel that their stories are important enough to tell them. And I think people are. That's why I love Instagram. That's yeah. why I love when people go live. I, 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 even if I don't know them, I watch it because, like, I'm so enamored with people who share stories. <laughs> yeah, people overshare, but I, <laughs> you know what I mean. I love that I exist in this time where people are like communicating what they feel right, right there. It's the level the of vulnerability that people allow themselves to have, which is kind of wild because oh yeah, uh, there's you know there's people that will never tell you certain things to you or to a crowd, but somehow they feel that they can have that real serious moment of vulnerability. And some people sort of frown upon that and feel vulnerable and it feels safe. Like, why not? You know, the is found for them in some moments and that helps them and helps us in some way or another, then, you know, more power to them. And I was just thinking about you as a child and, and sort of the environment that you described that was both very hard and attic and then also had, a lot of really important magical sort of moments that that you you know you're still sort of uncovering and discovering but it's like and you describing that little boy it's ancestors are you know if our ancestors had had the ability to have access to any of the things that we have right stories that we'd actually be able to have access to the pictures the stories the quotes ancestors or like you know a friend of mine Adaku Uta says that transestors had been able to communicate even those folks that we talked about earlier in their journey in their journey with HIV and and, and you know the best suffering and also the triumphs and yeah just kind of reaffirming the value of li- leaving stories that need to be told for the next generations and then also the um, you know, the, the the pain of not having that, I think, for um, generations like that are older than us, our parents perhaps, or or other queer community um, that might have not had mm. that um, at their disposal, you know, or that told their stories themselves because there weren't these type of platforms um, for them. Yeah, and that, and that is why, you know, the foundation mm-hmm. or the impetus, I think someone described it as that, um, of the project is right because people can tell their stories with but it for gravarones it is the portrait photography is the foundation of the project and that is because you got even in my 20s i would meet people or people who were older than me who had survived who had came out of the aids the height of the aids epidemic in the 80s they just, I experienced, I experienced it as a very young person. I like watching my mother talk about it, watching my mother deal with loss. So, when in my 20s, when I would meet someone who was my mother's age, they, and this is countless. If I had a dime for every time 
some older person would pull me to the side mm. and say, you remind me of mm-hmm. insert whatever mm-hmm. name, right? And they would say they're no longer here. And, you know, I didn't ask why, but you would get that in the context of how they described them. And they never had a picture right. of them. Yeah. Because for whatever reason, you know, I, I know that I don't have a lot of pictures of myself growing up. right? Poverty. It was called money in the 90s, right? Yeah, fucking poverty. Um, so I would hear these stories of people that they lost mm. and no one had pictures of them. So part of the Gravarones was, you know, to, to document, not just to document their stories, because right. that is enough that it's critical, but also them visually to prove that they existed. So that is why everyone who's ever shared their story and everyone who's ever shared their story gets interviewed in person. That's critical for us as well. Um, has their photograph taken because it we want people to not only know their stories but to know right. what they look like. Because people didn't have that as easily accessible to them even in the nineteen eighties no, and nineties. Yeah, I have like three pictures of me as a child. I assume it was the same for you, given the the scarcity, the scarcity of situation. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, for real. <laughs> <laughs> like four, and you yes. use them differently. That's real. Yeah, that's real. And you're like, you let me imagine me like five years after that. Um, you know, I I would love for you to say why um, why and black. You had explained to to me this before. Why black and white is is how you present folks in the pictures. I'm curious for you to share a little bit about that, and then also. Um, you reference the Gran Varone song and i um, curious if you can say a little bit more about it and what it means to you. Awesome. I keep, I keep meaning, I'm going to write about Good. it before the end of this year. I promise. Because that song turned, that song turned 30 years old in May. And <laughs> since May, I've been saying I'm going to do it next week. Um, but before I get to that, the reason why, you know, we decided to do black and white photos is because I think black and white photos always look amazing. And I think everyone looks amazing in black and white photos. And we didn't want um, Gravarones to be an Instagram page where non-black and non-Latinx people went to to gawk at Mm. who was the most sexiest. And not even physical appearance, because sometimes... You can, I can photograph someone in front of a mural because the mural is popping, the picture pops um, versus someone whose picture I may take in their living room. And I, I, for me, I think that it was in color. I think that you run the risk of pictures um, popping out differently where black and white, everything is kind of leveled or any kind of way. Um, so that is why we went with black and white because and yeah, and I've never heard anyone f- say that they went onto the page to sexualize. Anybody would admit that, but I think that also people ex- ex- people experience my yeah, photos true. as artsy, right? Yeah, so it doesn't. So I think that people are automatically go into once they say, "Oh, okay, this isn't a photo spread of mm-hmm. Latinx gay men. These are stories," um, and it's that little, you know, just. Um, decision on just making black and white as equalized as possible, I think has made a difference. Um, yeah, it's really project. beautiful. 
now the project is named after a song, after a song that was written and performed <laughs> on very problematic. Um, Latinx singer. Oh, yes. I think he's Willy Puerto Colon. Rican. Or, um, yes, Willy Colon. He's, um, okay. he's actually New Rican. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he followed really? the project when we started, and then he, like, maybe, yeah, like, and he was like, This is like, I'm so humble that you named it <laughs> after my song. Anyway, so he released mm-hmm. the song in 1989, and I had never heard the song. You know, I didn't grow up listening to salsa music. Maybe once in a while, friends would play Mark Anthony, but in our in our mm-hmm. household, we just listened to R and B, right? Like that is all that my mother listened to, um, and pop music. So we didn't grow up with salsa merengue. And of course, I knew what they were because right. we'd hear them at family functions, but. I had not acquired a taste of it. And we didn't, you know, we were in a Spanish-speaking household. And it was a friend of mine when I was looking for a name for the project who had suggested mm-hmm. that I listen to the song. So I went on YouTube, played the song with the translation, mm-hmm. and I was blown away. En la sala de un hospital A las nueve y cuarenta y tres Nació Simón Es el verano del 56, el orgullo de Don Andrés por ser varón. Fue criado como los demás, con mano dura, con severidad, nunca opinó. Cuando crezcas vas a estudiar la misma vaina que tu papá, óyelo bien, tendrás que ser un gran varón. In short, it tells the story of a father who is raising his child to be the next leader or the next varón of the house, the next person in charge. But when the child, who's named Simon, exhibits some feminine behavior, the father's horrified. Because, like, how can you lead a house and be feminine? Um, so after some years, Simon moves to New York um, to, to live out their truth. Um, and then after some years, the father is like, well, I have to go find Simon. Goes to New York and is, you know, taken aback that Simon presents as very feminine. Disowns Simon again, goes back to Puerto Rico, then has another realization that, wow, God makes no mistakes. I need to love my son, Simon. When he gets a call that Simon died alone Mm -hmm. of a mysterious disease in a hospital. sala de un hospital de una extraña enfermedad murió Simón es el verano del 86 al enfermo de la cama 10 nadie lloró Simón, Simón, 
Yes, I, I did not. And it's yeah. oh, I, again, I had never heard it, right? But I was I was astounded why I had never heard it as a person who's always loved history, pop culture history, AIDS history. They had never ever come up in you know discussions around queer history, discussions around Latinx history, discussions around AIDS history, where this song sits at every one of those intersections. That how is it that I had never even in passing heard this song? So that's what it was like. Oh my god, I, that. I was like, I'm going to call the song, I'm going to call the project Gran Varones, and we're going, that's why originally we were doing coming out stories and how your role has changed in your family. Mm -hmm. Because of the song. So, yeah. So, you know, again, I was astounded that I had never heard it. So, you know, that was the name of the project. And then (laughs) when we started to interview people, that's when I started to realize the impact that it had on people. Because people would be like, oh my God, I remember dancing to the song with my mother. Or I remember like my mother would play this to remind me that she loves me. Or I remember like that, you know, this was how I was able to come out. Like, and I was just blown away that a song that I had Mm -hmm. never heard of had existed in this kind of way at this level with people who live next door to me. Really powerful song. I remember dancing to it a lot in college because I love salsa. And it's so interesting that salsa, you know, um, it could be the most intense, tragic, profound stories and people are dancing their asses off. Yeah, like it's like <laughs> like this. We are so dramatic. <laughs> I love us, um, but the, the the I mean, but like the the realization that mm-hmm. this is in 1989, right? That this song was out. Like so, like it, its impact and its history, no, I still yeah. think hasn't been told. I, I'm sure you've oh, you're doing this already, but that would be an awesome sort of like call for stories on just the Gran Varón song. Oh my God! Yes, I'm gonna take that <laughs> um, idea. Thank and you. the 1989 and everything that was going down, and you know, when we think about Willy Colon and you know who he is politically, and then it's just kind of tripping. Like maybe he just was in a very obviously was a very different place politically. Um, and curious who also wrote it. I, I don't know if it was him. Like anyway, there's just a whole bunch of history to that song that we did need to research. Yeah. Yeah, I think he wrote wow. it and produced it. Uh, but there was there was a movie called Simon Simon the Varon or something. I think I watched it on YouTube. <laughs> it's, it's a really well, you know, now he's he's a Republican and very conservative. Well, the one thing I also wanted to talk about, which I find amazing and beautiful and powerful, is Kiki's with Louie. And I want that to be lifted in this conversation because um, I don't I actually don't know what like the plans are for Kiki's with Louie. I know it's it's housed within a broader youth organization that I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about. But I almost died when I saw like the interview that you did with MJ Rodriguez of um, who's who plays Blanca and Pose and like other folks. And I just, yes. you know, talking about storytelling and like the kind of questions that you would ask as somebody who's more radical as somebody who has the sort of like understanding more radical understanding of pop culture and um and and uh, you know having her answer some questions but and then also just having like the ballroom culture like ballroom dancing um queens you know be interviewed and and um 
like previous generations and the beautiful, cute stories and powerful ones. And anyway, it's a beautiful project. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about it. You break down what Kiki's is in um, the trailer, but I'd love for you to say a little bit more about that. You know, we went with Kiki's because, you know, I grew up with, you know, girls say, let's have a Kiki, which is, you know, another way of just like spending time and joking around and just existing together, right? Um, with rules that we decide on our own. Um, and, you know, a way to talk about all of the hard things or what people would call the hard things in life. But like talking about breakups, what it's like to grow up with addiction, what it's like to be to experience homophobia in school. When you're having a kiki, those discussions are not necessarily just um, grounded in pain, <laughs> but they're grounded in like, bitch, right. can you do this happen to me? Uh, yeah. <laughs> let me tell you some cheese, man, real quick. So um, that was like the impetus of why we wanted to call it the kikis with Louie, so that, that that would set up a kind of environment where we can talk about some quote unquote heavy stuff but with this, um, through this lens of um, resiliency and unapologetic um, existence. So it is a project of Advocates for Youth, which is an organ- a national organization that works in partnerships with young people and organizations to advance sex ed, both a fat- sex ed that is factual, accessible, and affirming at the community, um, state, and national level. We work hard to get affirming uh, sex ed into schools, sex ed that um, is especially LGBTQ affirming, and sex ed that does not HIV and STIs. So Kiki's is housed under that. And we wanted to create something to have in the YouTube space because while adults love Instagram and Facebook, um, younger people, what we got on Facebook, they left, right? So, like, now it's TikTok, right? But, you know, YouTube is still the one space or the space where most young people get their information. And that is music, news, entertainment news, um, and even education. So we wanted to create something that could be yeah. housed there. And that would interview, you know, folks that young people were looking up to, like MJ Rodriguez and Brent, um, Brendan Jordan um, and... Um, others, but also making sure that we interviewed young people as well. We filmed the show in seven different cities, and in each city we would um, interview an influencer that was associated or from that city. That's why our first um, episode took place in New York, and that's why we interviewed the fabulous and now legendary MJ Rodriguez. And then in each city we would also interview a group of young people who were doing... um, organizing on the ground there. I loved it um, because I got to host the kids show, which was so weird for me. Oh. I'm like the gay Mr. Rogers right now. So let's yeah. rebrand this. I got to talk to and interview some amazing people and young people, mm-hmm. but also like center them, right? I think the Gravarones, um, while I tell the stories of other people, I also share my own stories on there. Um, but with Kiki's, I was able to like really let right. the people telling the story shine, right? I was just kind of like facilitating a conversation. Um, so it was great to be in that kind of space because it was like workshops that I do. Um, but also it was just great to meet 
people who were doing amazing things in different cities that I don't necessarily visit all the time. So we just wrapped this season. Uh, I think we have one more episode coming out with Precious um, and Tati from my house, the Vice um, Real Life um, Ballroom Show. Um, I think the next episode is in two weeks. No, I think it's right after the new year. But yeah, I think we're 22 episodes in. Um, So we're taking some time to regroup um, to figure out where we want to take it next. I love that, you know, the promos of the show comes on (laughs) while my son is on YouTube, right? So it's, I'm sure it's weird for him to see me (laughs) pop up as he's playing Meek Mills. That's the best. Uh, But also I think that what I love about this show is that it does model how Mm, adults mm -hmm. can have these conversations with young people. Right, because I'm 43 years old, and while I think I feel youthful and mm-hmm. that I am eternally 22, I am not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I am a parent of a 17-year-old. So I'm always, you know, holding my um, self accountable, making sure that while I believe that young people have autonomy for what they want to do with their bodies, that I also believe that mm-hmm. and implement that in my relationship with my son. So I hope that watch Kiki's uh, specifically adults, are able to see that, yeah, these conversations can be difficult. Some of the subject matter can be heavy. Conversations are not impossible. And magic, closeness, and connection uh, can be built. So many stories, um, both through Gambarones, but even you as a poet and training other people to be storytellers and hearing other storytellers. Has there been particular things you've heard that feel new or that have surprised you in this experience with Kiki's with Louis and with Louis now that you're kind of like on the, on the interviewer sort of end and asking folks to tell you more. Great question. Who? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that because, um, because, you know, what gets posted right. is obviously a very edited part of the story, right? So I think that each interview, mm-hmm. it's always a different kind of journey. So it's hard for me to figure out or to identify one. I know at 3 a.m. I'm going to say, dude, that was a good one. Um, but one that I bring up often is, you know, when I was still in Philadelphia, this is about... I think we were we might have been a year or a year and a half into the project, and I was still meeting people off of Facebook um, because, again, we grew up unlike a lot of my other cousins. So my social network, I didn't have a lot of Latinx friends, right? So. This one person, um, Raul, had um, reached out on Facebook and said, hey, and we started chatting. And I told him about the project. And he's like, all right, I'll let you know when I want to be interviewed. I was like, all right, cool. And then one Saturday, I'm like getting ready to go to the club. And Anthony's on his way to pick me up. And Raul texts me and says, hey, I'm not doing anything tonight. You should come interview me today. And I'm like, cool. All right. I said, let me text Anthony. So I call Anthony. I text Anthony. I said, hey, Anthony, Raul's ready to be interviewed. We can stop by his house 
and then, you know, head to the club afterwards. Anthony's like, bet. Anthony picks me up. I get in the car, and Anthony's like, so where does Raul <laughs> live? And I'm like, oh, damn, I forgot to ask. So I text Raul. He's like, hey, where do you live? He's like, I live on Franklin and Lehigh. And I'm like, oh. And Anthony's like, mm. what's up? I saw that's the block my brother was murdered on. I know exactly what block he lives on. So Anthony's like, you good? Because Anthony's not necessarily an emotional person. So you good right. is as, <laughs> as much support you're going to get. Uh, so he's like, you good? I say, no, I'm good. You know, again, because I'm the older brother. It's like, we got we to gotta get the story for the project. Yeah. I'll schedule my trauma later. So we go, we park, and I'm like, yep, that's mm. the house right there. My brother was shot, rolling no steps, but I'm good. So we get to Raul's house, and it's pitch black inside. So I'm like, right. so because of the way I grew up and the business that some of my family members were in, I turned to Anthony, and I said, hey, Anthony, this may be <laughs> a spot where they hold drugs, so... Um, you don't have to go in if you don't want to, <laughs> but I'm still going to go in. And it's like, no, no, I go with you. I was like, okay, because in case it, in case you get raided, I don't want you to blame me that we're in jail. So we we walk in, and as soon as you open the door, there are sheets hanging up. Mm. And I immediately knew why the sheets were hanging mm. up. It was to keep the heat in the house. And I was harking back to my childhood, right? The childhood and the past that, all, that yeah. always one, one paycheck away right yeah so it's like you're always running from that right like yes. you feel far away from it but it's always breathing down your neck so so i'm like okay so i, I have two seconds mm-hmm. to prepare myself like girl do not get triggered like we got this so i walk in and it's pretty dark and i can see like, a couple of lamps in the corner and i immediately in my head i'm like they're getting electricity from next door how do i know this because we've been through this so I look around and I look for the hot plate and I see the hot plate and I look for the thick orange cord, the extension cord. And I see it go through the door to next door and I'm like, okay, got it. We good. We can schedule our trauma later. We can write a poem or cry later. And the space was really celebratory. You know, it was Raul, Ralphie, who also wound up sharing his story that night. Mm-hmm. And I think their cousin, I forget what her name was. And we sit down, and it's it's very you know celebratory. They're you know partying, getting high, and they're like, "Louis, <laughs> Raul taps this cousin says, you so rude and offer how many four loco, Louis? What kind of four loco do you want? You want watermelon or cherry?" <laughs> and I'm like, "I'll take watermelon." And we had an amazing time that night, you know. I think, and also like while I was taking their photos. I had yeah. to use the flash because, again, the space was really dark. And I remember him, you know, saying, well, you're going to mm-hmm. edit out the water stains from my wall, right? And that is what took me out of the moment because I remember afraid right. to invite people to my house because we had holes in the wall. And the reason why that story comes up because it was one of the clear reminders that what we were doing was some dope ass work because we were getting stories mm. that people don't want queer people to tell. We were getting stories that people don't think queer people are surviving. It wasn't right. a story about coming out and not that those stories are important. It mm-hmm. was a stories about surviving poverty in Philadelphia. 
It was a story about finding community and building a celebratory space, even in the dark. And it was in that moment that solidified it for me mm-hmm. that this is why the fuck we do what we do. Um, and even like four years mm-hmm. later, I'm still moved by that story. And, you know, that story, I've experienced that kind of story over and over, give or take a few um, details. But I think that even in all those stories, it's they're not, right. they don't stay in sadness, right? Because even when those stories yes. are sad, is this, but I'm here, right? And mm-hmm. it's like, because people said that I wouldn't be here. Um, and I think that's what stays with me, which is why it's hard for me to choose just one. Because even the most funniest and the most saddest story we shared is this this declaration mm. that I'm here even when the world told me Ooh. that I wasn't going to be. Yes, def- defiant and never meant to survive and a product of struggle yes. um, by your ancestors and all the ancestors and transistors of the world. So I'm just really incredibly grateful for you and for all your work and and for sharing it with me today and with the folks that are going to be listening to this. And I hope that folks will check out Gran Varones. I hope that this is also an invitation for folks out there who want to share their story on Gran Varones to do so as well, to check out Kiki's with Louie, all the healing that your work is bringing forth and into the world. And I think this last story that that you shared with us definitely affirms that. So thank you so much. Al extranjero se fue Simón, lejos de casa se le olvidó aquel sermón. Cambió la forma de caminar, usaba falda, lápiz, labial y un carterón. Cuenta la gente que un día el papá fue a visitarlo sin avisar, vaya que error. Y una mujer le habló al pasar, le dijo hola, ¿qué tal papá, cómo te va? No me conoces, yo soy Simón, Simón tu hijo, el gran varón. Our music is by Rafael Maya. Please subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can find us on social media at La Cura Podcast.